Why, hello, Julia. Hello. So for today's episode, I thought we would travel back into Milwaukee's early days and explore the industries that drove the growth that made Milwaukee one of the biggest and most prosperous cities on the western shore of Lake Michigan. Sounds good. We all know that Milwaukee is famous for beer, but whether you like it or not, beer brewing was never really the industry that actually put Milwaukee on the map. It was really three other early industries that employed more people, sold much more product, and generated more money for Milwaukee than beer. And those were flour milling, leather tanning, and meat packing, which is why today we're calling this episode Wheat, Leather, and Meat. So in the 1830s and 1840s, most of the people who immigrated to the Wisconsin Territory actually became farmers. They grew primarily wheat, as well as other feed crops like corn, hay, and oats for raising cattle and pigs. So right from the very beginning, we had this cooperative relationship between the rural and the urban landscape in Pioneer, Wisconsin. Each needed the other to survive and prosper. The farmers needed cities to sell their agricultural products, as well as for banking and supplies, and the cities needed the farmers' products to process and sell to wider markets. So Milwaukee, of course, had a built-in advantage because it had the deepest river on the largest natural harbor on the western Great Lakes, which quickly made it a major port city linking the western territories and states to the east coast. And Milwaukee soon became the commercial capital of frontier Wisconsin. So in the days prior to railroads, Milwaukee became one of the largest purchasers and processors of agricultural products that were then sent to the big cities on the eastern seaboard by way of the Great Lakes. So for the sake of organization, I thought we could take a closer look into each one of these three industries, starting with the wheat industry. And to put it simply, wheat was Wisconsin's first major agricultural crop, and flour milling was Milwaukee's first major industry. Before the invention of steam engines, flour milling required water power to turn the millstones that processed wheat into flour. While Milwaukee was blessed with a large natural harbor, it unfortunately lacked a natural source of water power, something like natural waterfalls. Mm -hmm. So this is where a failed project by one of Milwaukee's three founders, Byron Kilborn, ironically ended up becoming Milwaukee's major source for water power. Byron Kilborn was born in Connecticut in 1801 and his family moved to Ohio when he was a young child. He became a surveyor at the age of 17, a trade that was vital for mapping, platting, and settling the Midwest. In addition, he briefly worked on the Miami Canal that linked Dayton with Cincinnati in Ohio. At the age of 32, he won a contract to survey land between Green Bay and Chicago prior to federal land sales. But after only a year, he decided to quit surveying and permanently settled in Milwaukee. He became convinced that the large natural protected bay, access to the three rivers, and virtually unbounded western frontiers set Milwaukee up for natural success, and more importantly, his success. <laughs> With 8,500 bucks in his pocket, he became a professional land speculator, claiming and buying land for just $1.25 per acre on the west side of the Milwaukee River. He quickly mapped out lots and streets and then sold the lots to settlers coming from the east. In all, he bought and sold about 6,800 acres, and in 1837, he named his settlement Kilborn Town. Throughout his entire life, Byron Kilborn was, if nothing else, self-determined, self-driven, and self-centered. In 1835, Dr. Lucius Barber described Byron Kilborn as a man of strong prejudices 
and dictatorial disposition, at all times insistent upon having his own way, and consequently not popular. As just one example, we know that when Kilborn mapped out his streets, he gave absolutely no regard or recognition to the already existing streets on Juno's east side, which is why all of our downtown bridges are set at odd angles. Kilborn believed that transportation and connecting Milwaukee to the rest of the world was vital for Milwaukee's success. It was critical for Milwaukee to take advantage of its geographic location to compete successfully with other cities, particularly Chicago. His big idea to compete and win was the Milwaukee and Rock River Canal. It would be a Midwestern version of the Erie Canal. So just as the 1825 Erie Canal connected the Atlantic Ocean to the Great Lakes, Kilborn's Canal would connect the Great Lakes to the Gulf of Mexico. He envisioned a canal that would start in Milwaukee and would connect with the Rock River at Fort Atkinson and then follow the river to the Mississippi at Rock Island, Illinois. He hired his friend and associate, Increase Lapham, to be the chief engineer on the project. Lapham estimated it would cost about $725,000 to dig the 250-mile canal. Their first task was to build the North Avenue Dam, which raised the river by 12 feet and created the source of water for the first legs of the canal, and that was completed in 1840. Unfortunately for Byron, the whole project fizzled out after only a couple years as he lost financial and political support. He only managed to dig part of the first leg of the canal from North Avenue to what is now McKinley Avenue, a total distance of about a mile and a quarter, just a bit short of the 250-mile goal. Just a bit. However, that small stretch of canal was not a complete failure. By 1843, the canal had become a mill race that could provide water power to several flour mills, sawmills, tanneries, and other factories along the Milwaukee River, just south of the North Avenue Dam. So for today's, for today's fun fact, Julia, uh-huh. this small stretch of canal is actually still with us today. Yeah. Sort of. It was completely filled in at the turn of the century uh-huh. and turned into a street. Okay. What street is that? It's Commerce Street. Bingo. You are absolutely right. And if you're not familiar with Commerce Street, it is on the west side of the Milwaukee River, yep. parallel to the river, and it's where Lake Street, Lake, excuse me, where Lakefront Brewery is located. Yes. It could have been called Canal Front Brewery. Yeah. <laughs> so to get back to our flour milling story, it was that failed canal that provided the water power for the city's first flour mill that opened in 1844. As additional mills began operating, the industry steadily grew throughout the 1840s and the 1850s. It wasn't long before Milwaukee mills were producing far more flour than can be consumed locally or regionally. By the early 1860s, Milwaukee was the largest shipper of wheat on the planet. Wheat poured in from Wisconsin and neighboring states, where it was stored in huge grain elevators along the Milwaukee and Menominee rivers before being shipped to the eastern seaboard by schooner, or by rail. Or more importantly for Milwaukee, it was first processed into flour and then shipped to the eastern seaboard. The processing from grain into flour added value prior to being shipped and generated more wealth than simply shipping the grain. So by the late 19th century, there were seven major flour mills operating in Milwaukee. Eagle, Phoenix, Daisy, Reliance, Jupiter, Duluth, and Gem. 
and the central flour milling district was concentrated along the Milwaukee River, along the Milwaukee River, with the two largest mills located roughly where Belit Street is today. So basically between Cherry Street and McKinley Avenue yeah. along the Milwaukee River. It was in the 1870s that Edward P. Alice introduced his belt-driven roller mills that revolutionized flour milling in the United States. His new mill used accurately spaced corrugated rollers to process the wheat grains into flour. And his company's invention essentially replaced the use of millstones that had literally been used for centuries in milling flour. The adoption of his mills led to a boom in Milwaukee's flour production. By the late 1870s, Milwaukee had become the world's largest market for trading, exporting, and inspecting grain. In fact, Alexander Mitchell, Milwaukee's wealthiest citizen, built the Commerce Building at the corner of Michigan and Broadway for that very purpose. Milwaukee's pr most prominent architect at the time, Edward Townsend Mix, designed the building, and it was completed in 1879. The stone exterior features a soaring clock tower and carvings of the Great Seal of Wisconsin, as well as a bull and a bear. Inside the building was, and still is, the three-story grain exchange room, where national and even international wheat prices were set on its octagonal trading pit. That building also happens to be where Historic Milwaukee's world headquarters are located, <laughs> and where we're recording this podcast right now. Right now, yep. So by 1892, Milwaukee's flour mills reached their peak and were producing over 2.1 million barrels of flour per year. Unfortunately, the good times couldn't last and the industry soon went into a steady decline. It was three factors that led to the decline, soil depletion, unsteady prices, and the growth of the railroads. Truth be told, the soil depletion by itself probably would have caused the downfall of the industry in Wisconsin, but the unpredictable prices and railroads simply made the process that much faster. While a larger railroad network did make eastern markets that much more accessible to Milwaukee's mills, on the flip side, it allowed for even larger and more efficient wheat farms and flour mills further west of Milwaukee. Bigger and more fertile tracts of land in Minnesota and the Dakotas were opened up, and it wasn't long before Minneapolis replaced Milwaukee as the center of the grain trade. In fact, by 1919, Milwaukee was producing less than a quarter of what it had been producing at its peak, which wasn't even enough to meet local flour consumption. And by 1920, flour milling fell off the list of Milwaukee's top 10 industries, never to return. So the next in early industry on our list for today is the leather tanning industry. And just like flour milling and just like the brewing industry, leather was being tanned in Milwaukee by the 1840s. The first two leather tanneries in Milwaukee opened in 1842. These early tanneries were pretty small businesses that only employed a handful of workers and produced custom leather items on site. However, all that began to change in the late 1840s and 1850s when truly large-scale industrial operations began to emerge. It turns out that mid-19th century Milwaukee proved to be an ideal location for industrial leather tanning. First, the three rivers within the city provided ample water that was necessary for the processing of hides. Tanneries sprouted up along all three rivers throughout the 19th century. Second, Lake Michigan provided the initial transportation route for shipping finished product to the East Coast with its numerous shoe and boot factories. Naturally, when the railroads arrived, most of the transportation shifted from water to rail. Next, 
the Milwaukee and Chicago stockyards provided plenty of hides to turn into leather. Fourth, Milwaukee had access to plenty of tree bark from northern Wisconsin and Michigan to provide the tannin that was necessary to turn hides into usable leather. Mm -hmm. This actually was arguably the key ingredient to Milwaukee's success as a center for leather tanning. Sure. Why is that? And that's because in the 1840s, most of the trees on the East Coast with the necessary tannin bark had been clear cut and were no longer available. Okay. Yeah. So deforestation. Yeah. Deforestation. <laughs> and so the industry shifted all the way from the East Coast to here in Milwaukee. Okay. In fact, that's the exact reason why Edward P. Alice came to Milwaukee in the first place. He moved his leather tanning business from upstate New York to Wisconsin in 1846. And by 1850, he had renamed the business the Wisconsin Leather Company. Of course, he later sold his interest in the business in 1856 and moved on to what would become his highly successful Reliance Works. And then the last key factor that led Milwaukee to become the leader in leather tanning was the outbreak of the Civil War. Once the southern states seceded and shots were fired on Fort Sumter, the federal government suddenly found itself needing hundreds of thousands of troops and the equipment that went with them including boots, belts, satchels, holsters, carriage boxes, uh, knapsacks, harnesses, and saddles, all made of leather. Milwaukee leather tanners were given government contracts to produce the leather for these items, and those contracts turned out to be the catalyst that jump-started the whole industry here in Milwaukee. Every leather producer benefited, and business boomed. Following the Civil War, the Wisconsin Leather Company opened a tannery along the Kinnikinick River in 1870, and they hired Edward Townsend Mix to design their Cream City Brick Company headquarters in 1874. And that building still exists today, Julia. It does. In fact, it's right around the corner from HMI headquarters on Clybourne Street. Yep. And today it's home to the Central Standard Distillery Craft House and Kitchen. Yeah, and a lot of its interior is... Um... Well, at least the Cream City brick is untouched. Yeah, it's all exposed, yep. untouched. It's really cool. Very so cool. if you ever get a chance, check it out. Yeah. So then a pair of German immigrants named Albert Trostel and August Galoon founded their tannery in 1858, just prior to the Civil War. And they were located on just south of the North Avenue Dam along the Milwaukee River. Like other tanners, Trostel and Galoon enjoyed huge success during the Civil War and in the years that followed and they stayed in business together until 1885. And that is when the two families decided the business became had become so large that they could easily split the company into two separate entities, Albert Trostel & Sons and A.F. Galoon & Sons. Trostel located his tannery on the west bank of the Milwaukee River at Commerce and Walnut, and Galoon built his on the east side of the river, and that operation eventually took up over two city blocks and over 900,000 square feet. So whether together or separate, Trostel and Galoon were two of the largest tanners in the country. However, the honor of becoming the largest went to their local competitor, the Pfister and Vogel Leather Company. That company was founded by another pair of German immigrants, Guido Pfister and Frederick Vogel, who each established their own separate tanneries in Walker's Point, along the Menominee River in 1847, but they combined their operations just a year later. Within just a few years, the company became the largest industrial tanner in Milwaukee. By the turn of the century, Pfister and Vogel had expanded 
into a sprawling industrial complex of 38 buildings on 15 acres along the Menominee River, as well as a few smaller plants around Milwaukee that employed over 1,000 workers. And that was located along 6th Street on the west side of the south end of the 6th Street Bridge. Yes. So if you know where Great Lakes Distillery is, Mm -hmm. it's all those Cream City buildings that are behind that and around it. In fact, most of the buildings of the tannery actually still exist, and they've undergone all kinds of renovation and reinvigoration Mm -hmm. and reuse over the last 15, 20 years. Hopefully they call the complex the tannery. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Helps to describe exactly Exactly what it was. Um, So between 1870 and 1900, Milwaukee's leather industry grew into a national and international center for production. New machinery, new ideas, and new chemical innovations reduced the time it took to tan hides, which allowed for greater production at reduced costs. So the industry, as a result, grew at a staggering rate, from just over 225,000 hides in 1875 to nearly 575,000 in 1885, to almost a million in 1895, and then nearly 2 million by 1905. That's insane. Yeah, nearly a tenfold increase in production in only 30 years. Wow. So by 1890, Milwaukee had become the largest producer of tanned leather on the planet, and by 1905, it was the largest industry in Milwaukee. Interestingly, the vast majority of the leather produced here in Milwaukee was shipped out to the leather factories on the eastern seaboard. There were only a few companies that actually produced finished leather goods here in Milwaukee, okay. such as the Bradley and Metcalf Shoe Company. Mm-hmm. So overall demand for leather peaked with another war, and this time it was World War I. Mm-hmm. During the war, Fisher and Vogel employed over 3,500 workers. Soon after the war, however, a number of factors led to the sharp and steady decline of the industry and the Milwaukee leather tanners. Wartime demand had caused the price of leather to skyrocket. So following the war, we saw other materials begin to replace leather, such as canvas and rubber. We also saw the introduction of brand new textiles and synthetic materials that could replace leather, such as naugahyde and vinyl upholstery, which actually were introduced like right around 1920. Yeah. Uh, the, the growth of the automobile led to the de- decreased use of common leather goods like saddles, harnesses, and, of course, buggy whips. Uh, The adoption of of electric motors led to the abandonment of leather belt drives in factories, and the increased competition from all over the world led to the the decline in domestic leather production throughout the rest of the 20th century. In fact, in 1930, Pfister and Vogel literally abandoned their gigantic complex along the Menominee River, and they consolidated into a much smaller factory just north of downtown at the corner of Water and Pleasant. Okay. So right where the North End Apartments are today. Today, yeah. So the Trostel Company man- went out of business in the 1980s. Galoon managed to hold on until 1993. And even Fister and Vogel couldn't manage to stay in business past 2000. So while the huge industrial-scale tanners of the 19th century and 20th century are now long gone, all is not lost. There are still actually a number of leather tanning companies in, in business in Milwaukee today. Uh, there's one in River West. There are three in the Menominee Valley. And there's another one on the north side. So it's still a viable industry and it's still alive. 
And as pointed out, a lot of the historic infrastructure from entities long gone are there. Oh, yeah. The tannery buildings yep. and all that. Yep, yep. I think Trostel was completely torn down. Okay. And that's now uh, Trostel Square yep. condominiums. Um, the administration building for the Galoon tannery is still there yeah. on Water Street. It's apartments or? It's condos. Condos. Uh, right next door to Red Lion. Yep. And then, like we said, Fister and Vogel, um, that whole complex, most of that is still still around. Yeah. So now we, that brings up our third early industry in Milwaukee, which is meatpacking. So like many of the industries that made Milwaukee famous, the meatpacking industry started out small with a number of operations that focused on meeting the needs of individual neighborhoods and local communities. Similar to both the grain and leather industries, timing and conditions were just right for meatpacking in Milwaukee to develop from a purely local business into a major industry in the mid to late 1900s. Great. And a few local butcher shops grew into industrial-scale packing houses that eventually supplied local, regional, national, and even international markets. Milwaukee's growing population throughout the 19th century created an, an increasing demand for meat, particularly among the thousands of European immigrants. Road and rail connections between rural farms and Milwaukee provided a steady supply of cattle and hogs, and expanding rail connections gave Milwaukee's meat packers relatively quick access to ship their processed meat to the large and growing cities along the East Coast. Milwaukee's cold winters created an ice industry that was vital to the early meatpacking industry's growth. Ice from the Milwaukee River and nearby lakes provided a natural source of refrigeration necessary to preserve and ship large quantities of meat in an era before the invention of mechanical refrigeration. Now, I should note that the ice from the Milwaukee River came from above the dam and not below it. And with the onset of the Civil War, government contracts to keep federal troops fed doubled the amount of meat that Milwaukee packers processed and created a national recognition of Milwaukee's meat products. One of Milwaukee's first meatpacking moguls and multimillionaires was John Plankington. He was born in Delaware, educated in Pittsburgh, and came to Milwaukee in 1844 with his wife and newborn son when he was 24 years old. He initially opened and operated a general store. However, in 1849, he began to sell beef and pork products that he had butchered himself. And within only a year, he was the leading butcher shop in Milwaukee. Just a few years later, he went into partnership with an English-born competitor named Frederick Layton. Uh, Layton had come to America in Milwaukee in 1843 and had established a butcher shop on Water Street with his father, John. Frederick Layton had also purchased farmland next to what is now Forest Home Cemetery, where he built a three-story hotel along the Janesville Plank Road. The Layton Hotel was popular among farmers traveling to Milwaukee to sell their wheat harvests. And in fact, that building is still there today, across from Forest Home. In 1852, they partnered to form the Layton and Plankton Packing Company. And with a $3,000 loan from Marshall and Ilsley Bank, they built a slaughterhouse and packing house in the Menominee Valley. Layton and Plankington remained partners for almost a decade. The partnership ended in 1861, when Layton decided to leave the company to start a meat packing plant of his own. Plankington ran the business on his own for a few years until he entered another partnership 
1864, this time with a fellow named Philip Armour. That new company, Plankington and Armour, was an instant success due to the Union Army's huge demand for meat during the Civil War. And over the next 20 years, the company expanded from Milwaukee to Chicago and then to Kansas City. They also had an export business that was based out of New York City. By 1880, the company was pulling in over $15 million a year in sales, and 1880 was also the year that meatpacking became Milwaukee's largest industry. As Upton Sinclair wrote in his book, The Jungle, when hogs were slaughtered at packing plants, they processed and, and sold everything but the squeal. Naturally, the meat was the primary product, but none of the rest of the animal went to waste. Hides were turned into leather, intestines became sausage casings, blood and bone went into fertilizer, fat was processed into lard, bristles were made into hairbrushes, and the hooves were processed into glue. Packington and Armour were innovators in finding practical uses for every part of the hogs that they disassembled. Okay. That's good. Yeah. So. It's still gross. It's still gross. It's fine. In late 1884, Plankington and Armour decided to part ways. Plankington kept the Milwaukee operations and Armour bought out the operations in Chicago, Kansas City, and New York. And went on to become one of the great industrialists of the Gilded, Gilded Age. Age. Yes. <laughs> so if, you, if you're if you in and around Chicago, the Armour name is everywhere. everywhere. So following Armour's departure, Plankington spent the next few years grooming his company superintendent to take over the business when he retired. And that fellow was Patrick Cudahy. Patrick Cudahy was born on St. Patrick's Day in County Kilkenny, Ireland in 1849. His family immigrated to the U.S. when Patrick was just a few months old. He worked his way up within the Plankington Armor Company and became the company's superintendent in 1874 at the tender age of just 25. In 1888, when John Plankington made the decision to retire, he transferred the company over to Patrick and to his brother John. And that is how the Patrick Cudahy firm was born. In 1892, Cudahy purchased 700 acres of land in the town of Lake that was located adjacent to the Chicago and Northwestern Rail Line. He left the Menominee Valley and moved the company to the village that he named for himself, Cudahy. Patrick Cudahy's company is still with us today, and it's still in Cudahy, even though it's now a subsidiary of the Smithfield Corporation. Mm -hmm. But you can still pick up Patrick Cudahy's sweet applewood smoked bacon, deli meats, and hams at your local grocery store. Now, back to Frederick Layton. So when we last talked about him, he left the partnership with John Plankington in 1863 and opened his own firm with his father, John Layton. They named it Layton & Company and built their packing plant in the Menominee Valley. And just like with Plankington and Armour, government Civil War contracts led to huge increases in business and success for the Laytons. As I mentioned before, Frederick Layton was born in England. And as he and his father's business grew, Frederick Layton began traveling back and forth to England to establish a network of wholesalers for his canned pork products in Liverpool and in London. Over time, the Layton brand of meats became well known in England. In fact, I think I read somewhere that Frederick Layton made something like 90 trips to England and Europe over his lifetime. That's a lot of time. Yeah, especially at that time yeah. when you had to first get to New York and then yep. take a ship. It took forever, so that's a lot of time traveling. Yeah. Uh, when his father died in 1875, Frederick took over the business at the age of 48 
and he continued running the business for another 25 years until his retirement in 1900 at the age of 73. Now, it's pretty clear that Plankington and Layton were very successful businessmen. Yes. Who had both accumulated enormous amounts of wealth along the way. In fact, when Plankington died in 1891, his estate was estimated worth eight to ten million dollars. Okay. Now, what I find interesting is how each of these men differed in how each chose to spend or not spend their wealth. John Plankington was particularly well known for the mansions that he bought or he built. In 1864, he purchased an existing mansion along Grand Avenue and spent two hundred thousand dollars to remodel it into the most elegant and expensive house in milwaukee that's 1864 right i don't even want to do the math he's yeah he spent five thousand dollars on the carriage house alone and keep in mind this was at a time when a modest house could be built for around like 750 dollars and he had a house that existed right he just bought and then added in all that money so then not only that, but he built an equally extravagant mansion for his son, William, right next door to his own. Yep. And then he built another for his daughter, Elizabeth, right across the street. He spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on each one of these elegant and luxurious homes. Um, what would be equivalent to at least three to four million dollars for each one of them today, yeah. mm-hmm. at least. And I can't even imagine the cost to furnish, heat, and then staff each one of them with servants. Unfortunately, none of his grand mansions along Grand Avenue survived to this day. His mansion was torn down in 1975. His son Williams was torn down in 1969. And Elizabeth was torn down in 1980, which that's probably a story for another day. It's a whole other episode. It's a whole other episode, but we'll push on. Yes. So, in direct contrast, Frederick Layton and his wife Elizabeth built a nice but not very big clapboard house on Marshall Street in 1865. The couple never had children, and they stayed in that relatively modest house for the rest of their lives. It was reported that the interior was furnished with painted wood floors, modest old-fashioned furniture, and handmade rag rugs. Okay. The Milwaukee Journal writer Francis Stover commented that, Mr. Layton enjoyed visiting the fine homes of his friends. He praised their taste, and he admired architectural niceties. But for himself, the small square house was sufficient. And speaking of Layton's friends, in 1883, when he and his friend Alexander Mitchell were given a farewell dinner at the Milwaukee Club to celebrate their upcoming trip to Europe, Layton made some comments about how something needed to be done to build a public art gallery in Milwaukee. So the story goes that the very next day, a Sentinel newspaper reporter asked Layton how soon he planned to build an art gallery. Layton told the reporter that the whole thing was just an idea, there there were no solid plans, and to just not say much about it. Okay. So ignoring Layton's direction, the Sentinel instead chose to print that Layton was, quote, going abroad to study the architecture and management of art institutes and to gather information useful in constructing one here. And by that Sunday, it went even further when the New York Times reported, Layton stated definitely that on his return from Europe, he will give the city a fine art building. Zero to 60. So So from that point on, Layton found himself unexpectedly committed to the project. 
And that project really became his everlasting legacy here in Milwaukee. When purchasing artworks from Milwaukee's new art museum, Frederick Layton often combined his business trips with visits to galleries in New York and all across Europe. He purchased works by some of the most popular artists at the time, both European and American. His purchases became the nucleus for the museum's collection, but he wasn't the only donor. Layton convinced a number of his friends and contemporaries to donate to the new art gallery as well. People like Judson Roundy, Frederick Pabst, Philip Armour, Samuel Marshall and Charles Ilsley, Daniel Wells, the Cudahy brothers, and the Mitchell family. So the new Layton Art Gallery was opened in 1888 at the corner of Mason and Jefferson Streets. It was a one-story stone building built in a neoclassical style with skylights to provide natural lighting. Over the years, it's changed names and locations, but today we all know it as the Milwaukee Art Museum. And that gallery was actually, you know, like I said, it was located in Mason and Jefferson. It was torn down in 1957. Yep. And it was replaced with essentially a glorified parking structure. Oh, yeah. yeah it's where um, Sport Club is today. Okay. So Frederick Layton died in 1919 at the age of 92, and his meatpacking company lasted until 1935 when it went out of business during the Great Depression. So to wrap this episode up, even though beer was what made Milwaukee most famous, it was really wheat, leather, and meat that were the bigger economic engines that put Milwaukee on the map in the late 19th century and drove it into the 20th. And when you come across names like Trostel, Fister, Vogel, Plankington, and Layton, you, you'll know the history behind those names. Yeah. And that I, is our story for today. Thank you. I It's, um, well, I mean, street names, yep. major buildings. I mean, we've covered some of the, like, art museum thing. In, Layton Boulevard, Layton, Layton Boulevard, Avenue, Fister Hotel. Hotel. Preservation in general in the city of Milwaukee. Vogel, Vogel, Hotel, Vogel Hall at UWM. Yeah. All those families. Yep. They 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 run deep in, in Milwaukee. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks.